Hey, it's episode number eight of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm Jeff Veen. Today on the program, an old, old friend of mine, Peter Merholtz. He and I founded Adaptive Path 15 years ago, and recently he wrote a book for O'Reilly on how companies can better organize design teams. We talk about that and trace the history of how, after two decades, design became an overnight success in technology. So you're spending most of your time as a thought leader. <laughs> yes, uh, I as as Merlin Mann uh, used to say, I'm leading with thoughts. Um, uh, well, I've been uh, doing a lot of contracting for Capital One recently. The company what bought the company you and I started. Oh my gosh, we have with so much history. We should get into that. But go, yeah, go on, go on. yeah. I um, uh, since May, I've been helping them with Org Matters. They have a really large. Uh, internal design team that's grown very quickly and when that happens uh you know there's there there are p's and q's that you don't mind uh when it comes to operations and organization and management and stuff so i've been uh helping them out with that but then um uh on october 3rd i am joining ibm uh, uh wait, yeah wait, wait, you took a job i will be taking a job well, yeah, it's, it's, I haven't yes. announced it yet. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't announced it broadly yet. It's not a secret. I just haven't announced it broadly yet. Uh, I'm I'm going to be leading uh, design for IBM Blockchain uh, here oh, in San cool. Francisco, but also being part of IBM Design. Uh, you know, this five year they have like thirteen hundred designers now uh, organization. So you know, uh, as someone who's uh, Given my uh, obvious interests in uh, uh, design organizations, there there seemed to be no better place to join to to see what it's like to try to run a design organization at scale uh, than IBM. Yeah, well, that's pretty cool. I mean, and that work that you were talking about with Capital One, I mean, that's that's some pretty meta stuff. It's um, you know, it's not actually doing design. It's not process. It's um. You know, it's like, how do we create teams that do good work? Yeah, it is very meta. And that's, I mean, that's what I've been thinking about a lot the last few years. Uh, it's funny. I have no idea what anyone actually produces at Capital One. I've been working with that design team for five months now, and I have not seen any output. Um, yeah, I think they make these little plastic rectangles that you swipe through a machine. I, sure. Yeah, well, there's that. There's that. Uh, but really, you know, I've been, you know, they've got a 300 person team. So that's a team larger than many of, you know, than most of the startups you work with. Um, Wait, that's 300 <laughs> designers? Yeah. Uh, designers, researchers, content strategists, uh, program managers, but, you know, a, a design organization of 300 people. And when you get to that scale, um, it turns out there are uh, efficiencies to be realized if you pay attention to how you run that org uh, instead of doing it organically and in a somewhat slapdash fashion uh, by paying attention to the ways and means of how that org operates uh, it 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 has an impact it makes you more effective it allows it actually my my belief is it ends up allowing you to do better design work um, because you're setting up a space Right, kind of right. a virtual space as well as physical space for for better design work to happen. Um, but it's not the work I'm not doing any um, methodology, leadership, uh, any of that kind of stuff. Uh, better research methods, better design methods, prototyping methods, any of that. I, I, you know, I t to a certain degree, I think we figured all that stuff out a while ago, and it's mostly now a matter of 
of practicing it and operationalizing it. Um, I don't, I don't, I haven't seen a whole lot new from a methodology standpoint in the last five years. Uh, things that people talk about is new, like the whole Google Sprint thing. Yeah, that kind of got a lot of attention. You know, in a week, you can have all these remarkable outcomes. Uh, you might remember you had left Adaptive Path by this time. But in 2007, uh, Brandon and Leah posted a blog post and video talking about a tool they used called Sketchboards. Oh, yeah, I remember that. And Sketchboards was basically a sprint based design in a week model, almost identical to what you're seeing in 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 some of these new kind of instantiations. And so well, and I think that that sprint methodology actually dates back uh, before even 2007 with the work that was happening at Adaptive Path, because at, at that time I was at Google working with Charles Warren. Oh, yeah. And we were practicing a very similar sort of methodology internally at Google based on work that he had been doing for years and years earlier at IDEO. So yeah, I think it really does represent this sort of maturation, I guess, of methodologies to where we're not doing new methodologies all the time so much as we're really getting better at the ones that we've had for a while. I mean, with maybe the exception of the journey maps, which I, um, which seems pretty new, but that actually reminds me a lot of the, the mental map kind of methodology that we were doing way back in 2001. Very similar. Yes. I mean, a lot of that service design stuff, I mean, if you get historical, some of that even predates the work we were doing. It was just happening in such a isolated quarter of, of the design world that that folks weren't familiar with it um and it's funny i just um it's part of my work i've been doing i've been i've been visiting design agencies uh to to as a, as a in a review process uh for capital one and of the three agencies we met in san francisco each of them unsolicited showed us their service design capabilities um which demonstrated to me that uh Service design today is a little bit like UX was when we started Adaptive Path, where there's this, this understanding of its importance and the value that it provides, but companies don't have the team to do it. And so it's something that they're going externally for to find people to do it because they now have the team to do UX, so they don't need to go out for that. But they do need to go out for this thing that, that is, is a little beyond what they're currently doing. So we should go back and talk about some of this history. Sure. Uh, because I think I've known you longer than anybody else I've known professionally, just about, uh, since like 1996, I think it was. 1996. Well, you knew, you knew Mike Kuniavsky before me because Mike introduced us. Yeah, right, right, right. Because, um, yeah, Mike worked at Hotwired, uh, where I was working with, uh, you know, at Wired Magazine. And I think, I think... He brought you in as a subject for usability testing? Yes, it was, uh, I believe it was uh, Wired 4.0 or something in 1996. And I had probably just moved to San Francisco and, and you guys were testing some radical new web designs. Impenetrable, obtuse, <laughs> <laughs> just uh, unusable designs that everybody thought was just so cool. I'm going to click on Piazza because why wouldn't I? <laughs> Yeah, but, uh, I, you know, being that it was 1996, it was one of the very first few iterations we did of the web property. The fact that we were bringing users in from the outside to see it and use it before we launched, I can't tell you how controversial that was. You know, the fact that we were soliciting opinions from, from quote unquote, normal people 
who were not designers, like we had to hide that fact from some people in the building. Like we had to do this a little bit covertly. More, more, more innocent. Our young and innocent days. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But as as we did this test, I remember thinking you were no normal, ordinary person. <laughs> In that you had these 27 points about the, how the interface and user experience could be improved. And uh, maybe you all should check out the work of Don Norman. And uh, yeah. yeah, I had been, I had been, uh, before I moved back to San Francisco. So in nine, from 94 to 96, I worked at a, at a CD-ROM publisher called Voyager and did work on some CD-ROMs that, uh, of Don Norman's work. So, so uh, yeah, became yeah. familiar with his work. And I guess kind of most interesting about that, realized that there were other people who thought about things the way I did, um, who could kind of look at something and, and deconstruct it and recognize what works and what doesn't from a utility standpoint. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a child of the seventies and eighties. I had an Apple IIe. Uh, I always liked computers, but I was never interested, all that interested in programming them. I was interested in using them. Um, and for the longest time, it seemed like if you wanted to use computers, you had, or, you know, work with computers, you had to be a programmer, but then, you know, you and I started doing this work at just the right time when you could work with computers, but not necessarily be expected to code, that there were other roles that people recognized were valuable in making these computers go and, and usable for people. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I had, a, I had a similar sort of experience, too, um, in that I did, I actually did a lot of programming when I was young and very young, like middle school and high school, Commodore 64, and then later Apple IIe and, and stuff like that. It was really the the sort of formality of it all when I got to college and hit that wall of computer science and just thought, <laughs> this is not me. This is not me. Screw it. I'm going to become a humanities major. Yeah. I'm going to go study journalism <laughs> and I'm going to use computers to do that better. But, but that sort of all looped around again back in the early nineties in this time period that we've been talking about in that the way you made the web was sort of quote unquote technical in that you wrote a sort of code, right. but it was so easy. And granted, it's, you know, it's much more difficult now with all the layers of abstraction and the frameworks and libraries that everybody uses. But back then, you know, just about anybody who could sort of open a text editor uh, could make some web pages. You know, I remember thinking, uh, you know, this is not that different from the word processor, word, word perfect with the formatting codes and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, HTML, it was funny, though, because uh, I was able to teach myself HTML uh, you know, a little bit of guidance from some people around me, but it, it, it struck me that there were folks who just, and, and, and I could think this is something true throughout my career, folks who just didn't grok it. Like, even though it was pretty basic, like, it's just like, nope, that is not how I view the world. I do not view the world as a series of arguments <laughs> that I make around things. I, I have to see it in front of me. I can't, I can't in my mind do the interpretation that's necessary when you're doing that kind of even simple marking. Up. Right, 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 right. Yeah. You know, I worked with a lot of those designers, that type of designer uh, back when I was at Wired. I mean, kind of imagine you're in your early forties and it's the early nineties and you've got a 20 year career of design under your belt. And now you're looking at designing for something that just you know, they'd be like, what now? Where are the fonts? And that's the color. And you don't even know how big the page is. Right, right, right. So they would be like, all right, look, I'm going to go and draw something and I'm going to give it to you and you see how close you can get. And that, that was really my job for the first five years. 
I spent all my time seeing how close we could get. Yeah, no, I, I mean, so I worked at a design firm, Studio Archetype, one of the early uh, web design firms in San Francisco and similar. Um, I was a web developer there for my first year. And my job was originally it was how close can I get to what um, the designers are building? But I, I then kind of flipped the script a bit and, and instead started te- trying to teach the designers the capabilities of the medium. Right, right, right. Um, uh, I remember like writing up documents on animated GIFs uh, and how to use frames and stuff like that. So that because the problem was, uh, and I, I bet something like this still happens today in a different context, you know, they would do this design work, give it to the, me, the developer, the deadline wouldn't change, but I would realize like what they've given me is not is not feasible. And so, you know, the developer finds himself stuck between a rock and a hard place of how do we revise this so that it's close enough to what's being inspected, but still get it out in time. Um, and so, you know, I did I did what I could. And it's probably part of the reason, you know, I, I continue to teach in part because, you know, trying to get folks to understand what it is, their, the, the context in which they're working so they can do their they can work more appropriately, I guess. Yeah, right, right. Well, you know, that was the whole idea behind WebMonkey. Of course, we, yeah. When, you know, there was a small group of us that was figuring this stuff out every day uh, while we were working at Wired and teaching these insanely talented designers and editors about what would work and, and what wouldn't work and, and how to adapt the, their designs and, and their writing for this new medium. And we decided, you know, this is valuable enough that we should just share this out and, and make it public. And we did this sort of process of learning in public and um, forming a sort of community around that. Right. I mean, uh, when did WebMonkey start? Oh, in this time frame we're talking about, like 1996? 95, 96. Because I started writing on Peter Me in 98. And before, before then, I'd been... Uh, <laughs> I'd been sending a lot of emails uh, around internally to folks, and then um, I was on mailing lists. That's something that I wonder, another thing I wonder about these days is like where the conversation happens, because 20 years ago, there was a lot of really good conversation on mailing lists in terms of how to how to do this type of work. Linda Wyman had a mailing list. Uh, that's actually where I met Mike uh, Kuniansky. Um Steve Champion started a mailing list. There were there were these great... Zeldman, Zeldman had a list apart, which exists of course. as a website today. Exactly. And, and, and these communities that sprung up that were, that were helping one another figure out how to, how to do this type of work and, and share tips and tricks and, and all that. And um, may, maybe these things exist and I'm just too old and, and senior uh, that I'm not uh, in those forums, but but I do wonder, uh, kind of. Yeah, I think I think there's some. I mean, I'm not really a Reddit user, but I think the subreddits and other forums like that are um, a place. It was like some... Reddit, maybe Stack Overflow. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly, exactly. And and I think, but it's a, I think it's a lot less community based. It's a lot more answers driven. Like I get an error in my browser with JavaScript, and I paste it into Google, and I go to see a search. I do a search and I see an answer on Stack Overflow. Right, right, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do see this happening actually in these sort of semi-private slacks, you know, these Slack teams that people are setting up. There's like, you know, there's one on product management and you'll get in there and there'll be six, 700 people who are all chatting in various channels about various topics and things like that. And that's much more the sense of community, I think, that we had in the, in the older days. But it does lack the sort of permanence and, and like public searchability and, and, and things like that that improve the industry just overall. 
I, I'm 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 already experiencing Slack overload, so it, uh, just the thought of that, while mildly intriguing, is 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 frankly daunting. Yeah, the tyranny of the scroll. <laughs> I don't back. have time for all the slacks. I wonder <laughs> if part of that is that I'm no longer in my mid twenties. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I want to go to bed at a reasonable hour. I, I got to hang out with my kids. I want to hang out with my wife, and I want to go to bed at a reasonable hour. Exactly. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, there's yeah. also this sort of in person, like the gathering uh, of people. Um, you know, I, um, in the last year or so, relocated over here to London and been trying to get sort of connected into the scene, what's going on with design and stuff like that. There's a bunch of events, uh, very informal even, that still, you know, sort of continue to happen. There's this great one called Design Club, you know, where you have like two 15-minute talks from designers and then drinks afterwards and everybody's mingling and and everything. But I'll, I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm definitely one of the oldest ones there. <laughs> Uh, which I think it probably makes a lot of sense, you know, that, um, that the, the true, like the real hard work you need to do in networking and building your connections to other totally. people and really it's, does it's, happen it's, earlier it's important. in your career. Um, I, and I wonder, you know, in a place like San Francisco where it's, you can, I think you can get overwhelmed with the networking possibilities, but um you know if anyone listening to this conversation is is earlier in their career uh, uh making that you know i think you and i you know much of the success we had was our willingness to network and share and and engage uh from when you know from that point on um and uh it's definitely something i would encourage anyone uh coming up into the into the field Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and you and I, you know, we spent uh, in those early days a lot of time at conferences too, really, not just attending, because I know we've sort of met up at those all the time, but, but speaking and, and sharing and teaching as well, which can be an incredibly effective way to sort of rise up in your career and sort of say, hey, I want to share some stuff. Totally. And, and there's now just so many options. I, I keep thinking we hit peak conference, but, but then more of them uh, launch every, every month. So Yeah, well, I think conferences are incredibly hard businesses to make any money at. So, um, so I think you know, people do one or two of an event and it kind of goes away after that. And then, but it comes back with, uh, you know, people come back with more and more of these conferences. And you're right. Yeah, I think there is a bit of a, even a renaissance of these um, smaller fo more focused conferences coming up everywhere oh totally totally no and nothing nothing beats a uh conversation at you know sometime between seven and eleven o'clock at night over beers with people who care about the same things you do uh and and you get super animated uh and probably you know with a little bit of uh uh, liquid courage, <laughs> more involved, more engaged uh, uh, in, in, these, in these discussions. This week's episode of Presentable is brought to us by our friends at FreshBooks. You know, I talk to a lot of designers, and I can't tell you just how many times so many of them mention their side projects. This is work that they do when they come home from their job, you know, little projects. They do them for inspiration, to spur their creativity, and frankly, to generate a little bit of extra cash. And all of that is great. But it also means that you're going to have to spend some of your precious time collecting payment from people when all you want to be doing really is practicing your craft. 
FreshBooks are on a mission to help small business owners save time and avoid stress that comes from running their businesses. And that all starts with pain-free invoicing. FreshBooks has created a super intuitive tool that makes creating and sending invoices totally simple. It takes just 30 seconds to create and send an invoice, and you can add your company logo for that extra professionalism for the way you want your invoices to look. FreshBooks will give your clients tons of ways to pay you. They allow you to receive payments by credit card and integrate with services like PayPal, and this can seriously improve how quickly you get paid. In fact, FreshBook customers get paid up to five times faster on average. And this part is really great that you can see whether or not your client has looked at the invoice. So no more excuses, no lost invoice, and you can set up an automatic late payment reminder as well. So they just keep getting the email saying, hey, my invoice, how about it? And that's just the invoicing. FreshBooks has a lot of other features to help you keep organized. You can easily keep track of your expenses. And if you're in the US, you can automatically import your bank transactions for easy reconciliation. They have great reports. You can easily see who owes you what. Tons of third-party integrations. They do time tracking. They have amazing customer support. Getting started on FreshBooks is extremely simple. You don't really have to be a numbers person at all. FreshBooks is offering a 30-day free trial to listeners of this show. No credit card required. To claim your 30 days of unrestricted use, go to freshbooks.com slash presentable. That's freshbooks.com slash presentable. And when you sign up, please enter presentable in the how you heard about us section. So FreshBooks knows you came from this show. Thank you so much to FreshBooks for sponsoring presentable and Relay FM. Okay, so let's see where we are. It was the uh, end of the 90s and you left Studio Archetype. I think there was an acquisition or something. Uh, I had left before the acquisition. Uh, I went to a small firm called Phoenix Pop, uh, Simon Smith. Oh, I love Simon. Yeah, Simon and, and Bruce were the founders. Uh, you worked with Simon at Google, I know. Um, but I was only there for six months. Then I went independent. Uh, then I was at Opinions. Right, right. Uh, uh, web web 1.0. Uh, startup boom experience where I I called myself creative director these days I realized I would have been a head of design um, uh, and I I had a team of five which which seemed like a luxury um, uh, 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 working on the on the design of opinions and then left that to start Adaptive Path right right that was yeah and then I left Wired and in the in the intervening period the whole industry sort of went to hell well it was two thousand one two thousand two thousand one yeah. And so I think you pinged me and we went out for a burger on Valencia Street. Burger joint on Valencia. And I think you asked me, hey, you ever thought of doing any consulting? And I think I said to you, no. <laughs> and it turns out that was the right answer for you. But uh, yeah, it yeah, took a yeah. few years for you to, to fully come to grips with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, I, you know, it all sort of accelerates from there. But I do remember back then me always wanting to push farther and farther into product development, whereas you were always more interested in the practice and how teams work and how they have a fundamental impact on the organizations that we were hired to consult with. Yeah, I mean, one of our, one of our core principles at Adaptive Path was uh, what we called advancing the field of user experience. And, and, and I realized that was my own personal professional mission, kind of make the world safer for better experiences. And, you know, my evolution was with a place like Adaptive Path, what was great about AP was that it was this laboratory where we could, we could try stuff. And so, you know, we developed a set of methodologies. I mean, you wrote one of our most popular 
essays ever on um, content strategy, uh, or sorry, yeah. content inventories. Right, right, right. Content inventory. <laughs> the yeah. mind-numbingly yet important, you know, activity for for your website. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was this idea that you know back then we had these giant corporate websites that for the past five, six years had just been pouring, pouring content. Uh, out onto the web and nobody in the organizations having any idea where any of that, those pages were and there were no content management systems literally just files on websites and so yeah the whole methodology was hey look you click on links and when the page loads you write down everything you see <laughs> yes and you know you do it in a structured way and you include a bunch of metadata and a controlled vocabulary but that was really where the pain points were in that era yeah and and so you know we we the evolution, you know, so we created these methods to to improve design, but then, I, you know, we 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 would see that that our work wouldn't see the light of day. You know, you deliver the stuff to the client; it goes through this, that, the other thing. If it does launch, it's compromised. Uh, much of it never launches, and so then Adaptive Path started. Uh, you know, we started pushing upstream into more strategy work, thinking, okay, if we can, if we can. Uh, uh, affect the strategy, if we can help define the strategy, then the design will will follow from it and the design is more likely to be realized. But we, but then that didn't actually pan out necessarily either. And that's when I kind of kept moving upstream into the, and, and started focusing into the organization, like what's going on in there? Because there's clearly something about how these businesses work, how these, how these, how these companies are run that has this overwhelming effect beyond the practices and activities of design um where where the, those practices are not sufficient to overcome something else some other force that's happening uh within these organizations yeah and and this is also happening in a in a period of time where this concept of innovation which we all kind of take for granted today you know in our work uh, and how we talk about the industry but but back then that was a relatively new thing that companies were embracing as a as a way of looking forward and improving their business it wasn't it wasn't yeah it wasn't yet i i think super broad i i uh if if you know the the nine the 80s and early 90s were a lot about optimization it was a lot about uh, business process engineering and supply chains and you know you, we would hold up dell as this victor over say someone like gateway and the reason dell succeeded is because they figured out how to tool a supply chain better than anybody else um not not so the so i mean to the degree that I guess they innovated, but they didn't innovate on a product and the experience they were delivering. They innovated on on how they built that product, and and over time, uh, you just you you can only squeeze so much blood from that stone. Right. right. And innovation became. I mean, there was Michael Barut's article, "Innovation is the New Black," that was in two thousand three, four, or five. You know, innovation became this thing that that people wanted more of, and and design became associated with innovation as design is going to unlock new opportunities. Look at these guys from IDEO. They're crazy. They make they made a new shopping cart. Uh, you know, in this in this nightline video, you know, that's that's the future is is new stuff. Uh and and design, thankfully, you know, was kind of seen as as something that could um enable that uh uh or or contribute to that uh innovation right 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 but but that innovation i think back then and still to this day is often so misguided because you know when when you and i are talking about design we're talking about a a process a set of methods for uncovering user needs and i and i still think a lot of people are thinking about it as that iphone is really pretty we need something like that right right and i think well yeah uh 
My favorite phrase of late, I've realized, is cargo cult. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because yeah. over and over again, uh, what, what you see in so many different contexts is people um, going through the motions of what they think is uh, the right thing to do, but without understanding why they're doing it. Most notably in, in the world that I'm experiencing, it's agile. Companies are dubbing people scrum masters, doing one or two week sprints, having backlogs and user stories and engaging in all these things that they understand to be quote unquote agile and, and saying, look, we're agile, um, but they're not embracing the mindset of agile around nimbleness, around actually it's not about methodology and process. It's in fact anti-methodology and process. And it's just about getting the right people in the room to work together, not creating all these structures to, to, uh, uh, follow uh, uh in your work and and um you know i think similarly uh uh with innovation or with design you know companies see the iphone and they see only that that surface element of of uh beauty and attractiveness and don't understand the level of depth that that goes into that so they they remake the surface and miss out on on the deeper core Right. So it's sort of mid 2000s and we're leaving behind, or, you know, no, not actually leaving behind, but building on top of a lot of this process engineering and supply chain stuff and Six Sigma and TQM and, and these things that uh, businesses have been using as a way to sort of squeeze more and more into their margins. And at the same time, companies are are responding to technology that's emerging in a fundamental by fundamentally changing the way that they interact with their customers in that like before right you would call a human at a company and you could literally hear them typing into some computer system that um that they had been trained on and um was part of how they conducted the business when the web came around and got popular, we sort of decided that we would take those screens and just, we would use them. Right. But the problem is we didn't have the training or the domain expertise, and those systems were generally designed for experts. And when consumers got a hold of them, it was a terrible experience. Right. Like even the very concept of Ajax, which our partner, Jesse James Garrett, kind of came up with. Exactly, exactly. Rose from this project he was working on where... He was helping an insurance company uh, migrate from the green screen sort of terminals that the agents would type into to interfaces that consumers could use every day. Right, right. And, and it's, I mean, it's done right. It's a win-win, right? It's, it's, it's amazing. You get, uh, uh, for some reason, the first thing that comes to mind is TurboTax. And you get a tool that, you know, earlier, you know, you'd have to go to a tax accountant and, and they would have their special software to do it. Now I, uh, with moderately complex taxes, uh, you know, I own a home, uh, uh, I had some, you know, I have stock or, or whatever, uh, with moderately complex taxes, I can still do it myself using a piece of software. Um, and that's great. I can do it on my own time. I don't have to pay. You know, there's, there's all those benefits. But in order to provide that service and realize the benefit, these companies, at least the ones who figured it out, realize like, oh, we have to create something that we have to, we have to change the the interface and we have to change how this thing works So someone who is only using this um uh, in a small sliver of their life 15 minutes a day as opposed to eight hours a day is able to uh, make sense of it uh and 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 doesn't have to learn doesn't have to go to a, a four-hour training seminar in order to learn how to use this this tool um so yeah i 
that shift from internal to external, I think, was one of the many drivers, and it's one that actually doesn't get a lot of play, um, but I think one of the many drivers of, of why, of the growth of design, because customers, it was clear, I mean, you could look at your, your analytics and see that people weren't able to get things done that you needed them to, and so you needed someone to design that experience so that it, that it made sense to them. Yeah, yeah. And then I think over the next, uh, you know, five or six years, a lot of people realized that these these big companies that were making the shift from internal to external in how they provided their services were their fundamental business models were, you know, for lack of a better term, ripe for disruption. There's this idea that we're seeing, you know, we saw that uh, years ago in, in mobile phones, and, and now we're sort of seeing it in cars, in that the, can the companies who have been making these products get better at software faster than software people can get better at making those products. And I think that's why design has been sort of thrust to the forefront as the method of achieving this and being that point of differentiation for these software companies and that those incumbents who are making these products aren't going to be able to respond very quickly. And I think that's why we've seen so many uh, design agencies get acquired over these past four or five years by these big companies that are just desperately trying to keep up. I think that's right. Uh, uh, that uh, I don't know if you saw uh, Gravity Tank just got acquired by Salesforce. Yeah, uh, yesterday uh, as we record. This. Yesterday. And and if folks don't, uh, Gravity Tank is, uh, they were primarily a strategic design firm. So they, they weren't doing, you know, they weren't even like an idea or frog actually delivering a lot of products to the best of my knowledge. They were focused on, on more upstream matters. Um, and Salesforce, uh, CRM company has acquired them, you know, and, and that, that's about as weird as Capital One acquiring Adaptive Path. Um, I think you're right. I, it, every, well, yes, everything is software. One of, one, of the, one of the reasons that design has had this explosion, particularly in the last five or six years, there's actually an essay that um, Mark Andreessen wrote uh, 2011 now, uh, but it's it's a meme he keeps repeating, which is software is eating the world, and and it and it leans into what you were just saying now, like you know everything is becoming software, and that ends up privileging the software companies, the companies that that started and 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 made an initial investment in software they are privileged over incumbents who who are trying to embrace software now some of those incumbents i think are actually doing pretty well many of them because they didn't realize they were software companies so i think about ge or ibm um ge and ibm were not necessarily seen as software companies um but uh you know four or five years ago they they looked at themselves and realized like ge is like thought of itself as an industrial manufacturer but they did some analysis and realized they were the 14th largest software company in the world yeah, wow. because it turns out you need to write a lot of software to to make all those turbines move uh with that realization a best practice in software is user interface design human computer interaction I, i'm not even going to say something you know kind of fancy design just very kind of core design for usability uh, as we were discussing earlier in terms of the internal systems that become external right it's it's just how do you make it so that that most anyone can walk up to a, a system and use it. And so, you know, these companies are starting to invest heavily in design with this recognition of, oh, we're a software company and a best practice in software is to have designers working with engineers. Absolutely. All of that, I believe, is true. And 
And I would take that one step further. Uh, this is something that I saw, you know, I've talked about it on the show before, my, my three and a half years when I was at Adobe. Uh, this shift from we are fundamentally a software company to now we have become a services company. And, you, you know, we would see things like there'd be this team that was responsible for, for the actual shipping of software in the, in, you know, in the box with the graphics on the box and the manual inside and the little plastic disc. And now that team is no longer responsible for that. They're responsible for things like 24-7 uptime, very low latency, uh, making sure that when you launch Photoshop, you can log in not with a serial number anymore, but you can log in with your uh, username and password, your email address and password, and that every single time that happens, Photoshop is going to work. And that's a very, very different set of skills. It's a very different set of priorities. It's a very different set of things that a company needs to invest in that they're not currently investing in. And so, so the shift to make that happen to where the experience that you're having with Adobe software is graded on the same curve as uh, the experience you have when using Google or doing shipping from Amazon, totally different and fundamentally transformational. E even for a company that was traditionally in the software space, you know, you start to think, oh, my God, where do we start? Well, where did you start? I have a, I have a hypothesis, but I'm curious. I mean, you were you were cr crucial to the building out of of Creative Cloud um, and and kind of solving some of these problems. What was your what was, what were your initial steps to to make the shift from that product orientation to the service orientation? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, two things, really. And the first one, I think you probably have a lot of opinions on. And that is the uh, decentralization of design from an individual sort of business unit, a silo, if you were, into more of a product team mixed with engineers uh, and program managers and things like that. And the product that this sort of horizontal team was going to work on was the user experience of being a subscriber to the creative cloud and everything that would go with it, including the sort of customer support that, that, that you would need and, and um, the ability to manage subscriptions and accounts and all of that. And so the, the shift there was, was actually organizational in that um, I said, I'm, I'm going to be this like vice president of product design when I have designers and product managers and engineers all report to me in a way that doesn't make any sense in the existing org structure, but that is going to allow us to move incredibly quickly in a way that Adobe hadn't done before with regards to the, the level of service that it would provide through the, through the web experience. The second part of that then is around pacing and momentum. Right, so if, if we change the org to to develop this more nimble team now, you know, like when I got there, uh, we started talking about all right. So the next version of the Creative Suite that's going to be the Creative Cloud that's launching in fourteen months. So we have this plan. I'm like, wait, wait, wait. What's going to launch next week? What are we shipping tomorrow? And they're like, no, no, no. We've got analysts that are still working on the model. It's we got a long way to go. And I'm like, no, nope, we are a company that's going to be continuously shipping with, with all of the modern sort of DevOps machinery underneath, and that is going to be that's going to fundamentally shift again our relationship to our customers. Yeah, well, and and that first one um, resonates with with something I've been thinking about. Um, so you you mentioned kind of central decentralization and and. Uh, a model that I adopted when I was running Design at Groupon, I ended up calling the centralized partnership. And the idea there is to, um, instead of organizing your team by products, you organize your team by 
uh, uh, customers and their journeys um, and, and map your design team to customer types and, and the journeys they're on. Uh, with the idea being that products and so if we're in a services world and, and I think, uh, you know, you saw Adobe make that transition, Microsoft's make that transition. Um, most product firms have made a transition into, into being some type of services firm. If we're in that services world, um, what matters uh, is, is, not, is not just the products that you are delivering to them. Those products are kind of um, manifestations of a relationship. A service is based on a relationship between a customer and the company. And, it, and it's an always on, as you said, 24-7 relationship. And that, and that relationship is in turn served by product features and, and these things uh, that, that can help the customer. But I think the, the shift that companies are having to make is realizing the product was the trees and the service is the forest, right? And they were confusing the forest for the trees or the trees for the forest. And, and needing to shift that mindset away from worrying about feature by feature what's going on and more what, what is the customer experience we're expecting to deliver. You know, uh, Netflix is probably one of the best companies in this regard. You never, as a user of Netflix, you never think about it in a feature orientation, in a, in a bit by bit orientation. It just kind of works. It's everywhere you want it to be. They have clearly embraced a, 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 an approach to, to delivering that experience, that service, that doesn't feel, um, uh, uh, um, it doesn't feel disconnected. It doesn't feel incoherent. It just, it just kind of, it just kind of works. Now, how they organize, I actually don't know. <laughs> um, but, but, but their, but that output is clear uh, that that they've uh, really adopted that kind of service mindset throughout the company. Um, in order, and so. I'm getting a little balled up here because there's a big thought that I've been wrestling with and, and I'm curious your take on it. If, if every company is a service, services are predicated on relationships, what matters then, what companies need to start optimizing for is customer centricity, right? Adobe was optimizing for product centricity. You know, you had Photoshop and Illustrator and et cetera, et cetera, and that was the orientation. And instead, it needed to shift that away from, from those products to, to customers. Um, when you start organizing by customers, that's, that's what I'm trying to do with the centralized partnership design model, right? How do I organize my own design team by customers? Um, what, I, what I've seen since I've been sharing these ideas at conferences and writing about it um, is uh, I've been getting feedback that it's not just design that has recognized that you need to organize by customer journey. There's, um, I, I don't know if you're familiar with Ken Norton at Google Ventures. In fact, you might have worked with him when you were at Google. Yeah, yeah, I did. Um, so he's their product guru. He writes this great newsletter, and he has this post called "Don't Ship the Org Chart." And in it, he says that product management should be organized by customers and their experiences. And I read that, and I was like, "That's what I've been saying." But every product manager seems to think they should be organized by 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 their feature. And then he got a response from a, an engineer, Noah Weiss, who used to be at Foursquare and is now at Slack, who said, an engineer should be organized by uh, customers and their experiences so that you're not having to like pull from five different Git repos in order to get something done across all these different teams, that you just have a team that can kind of solve that customer's problem. And so I think what we're seeing, you know, there's a truth, I get very nerdy about organizations, and there's a truth that there is no perfect organization design. Um, and, and what you need to do when thinking about organization design is I, uh, identify what you're optimizing for. But I think as, as more and more companies are embracing this uh, 
the reality of being a services firm, uh, what we're what you're seeing is people recognizing that in order to to structure themselves appropriately, they need to optimize for the relationship because that's what matters in a service. And so you need to uh, organize in a customer-centered way in order to serve that relationship, even if that means you're de-optimizing for um, engineering efficiency or uh, uh, you know other things that companies have have earlier optimized for. Um, that that you're willing to to deprioritize that because what matters more than anything is that the that is that you're serving that customer completely on their journey. Yeah, well, you know, I totally agree with that on principle for sure. It just gets, I don't know, fuzzier for me when you start to think about okay, who's going to be working with whom and where do they get their priorities and and uh, to whom do they report uh, and all of the intricacies, especially as an organization starts to scale. And, it, and it's that scaling that's really tricky, right? Like I saw this again, you know, going back to my, my experience with Typekit, where we started at four people and very quickly grew to 20 people. And uh, in that brief period of time, that uh, almost everything we invented that worked for us, the processes and the communication and all of that stopped working. It just failed, and we had to reinvent and reinvent continuously, and and now scale that up to a company again, like Adobe with thirteen thousand people, or uh, you know Google, or with even more people like that. How do you manage that? Well, yeah, scale. Uh, you start needing you start needing to to do more communication, to start doing some standardizing, to start putting in processes and practices in play that allow a team to scale because. Uh, it's not just a group of folks, are, you know, in one room anymore, right? It's it's too big. <laughs> you can't just shout across the room to to make things happen. And so you need to adopt some practices. I I had a conversation with a friend last night, uh, who's a bit of an org geek as well, and he was talking about. And I'm I'm wondering if this bears out with your experience, right? Um, it, it, he mentioned how he was part of this group that was talking about kind of the, the the role that design has within enterprises and organizations, and and they had started by thinking that design was this virus, and they were thinking about it in a positive way, right? Design is this virus that you that you can inject into an organization and and try to you know slowly remake the organization in a, in a more kind of designerly customer centered way, but then as he mentioned, as as this group had been poking at this idea, they they turn it upside down and realized when a company is small, when there's the five of you at Typekit, you are by nature customer centered and 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 design led and just thinking about you're you're thinking about the right things because that's that's all you have. And as you scale, what happens is the virus is all these functions that that need to be introduced uh, seemingly uh, 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 to support you as you grow and you adopt HR and you adopt legal and compliance and you adopt all these things that end up getting in the way of your ability to simply serve customers. And, and it was, I thought it was an interesting inversion of, of that idea, uh, uh, where what's happened is as organizations scale, they almost kind of willingly take on this, these, these, um, nasty viral components that, that weigh them down and lose sight of that that what made them successful uh, at the outset in terms of that hyper customer focus. Yeah, well, I um I don't know. I've, I think I've said this before on the podcast, but I believe that it's a fundamental aspect of human nature that any group of people, whether they're a company or a team inside a company or a church or a neighborhood or a political system that no matter what as it grows, as you add more people to it, things inherently just slow down and communication fundamentally changes and the way you have to do all of that is just all different. 
Yeah, it's funny. I mean, there's the the Amazon has tried to, you know, address that with the whole two pizza team model. Right, right. right? right. There's this, and I'm sure they're not as fast as they were when they were just eight people. But, you know, the idea is uh, you you don't have a team larger than can be fed by two pizzas. You give them as much autonomy as possible, right? This is also how I think Spotify tries to operate. And I really enjoyed your conversation with Stanley. He and I have chatted about uh, these things, as you might imagine. Spotify's tried to adopt that model. But this idea of, of massive decentralization. Um, oh, uh, I, I did some work with OpenTable, and they're owned by Booking.com. Well, Priceline, but Priceline's largest uh, entity is Booking.com. And they also have adopted this model where you just have, you have a designer, a product manager, six engineers, and you basically give them an objective like OKRs. You know, here's, here's what you're, here's why you're, this little team exists. And here's how we're going to know that you're successful. And then you give them an API in and, uh, you know, data in and data out, but it's like a black box. They don't care <laughs> where it comes from. They don't care where they're sending it. As long as the little thing that they're focused on they're they're delivering that value in. And so you, you know, that allows these organizations to have teams working um, rapidly because they don't have to get approvals and check in and all that kind of stuff. Um, the, the, the challenge there is you create these, um, there, there's a potential for creating these incoherent experiences as all these little teams. I think this is what Stanley was kind of touching on with Spotify. All these teams working in isolation might be successful in their, in their one little area. But when you try to pull all that together, you get this, this Frankenstein that, that doesn't cohere. And so the challenge is how do you, how do you balance these? Yeah, right. Exactly. And I see the same thing in the technical side of things in the, the DevOps world, and how we run services. And I mean, literally like running things on servers. And there's this push now to this uh, microservices architecture, a sort of philosophy for how you essentially do what you were just talking about. Um, and what we were talking about, you know, in the last episode with Stanley on, on design systems, which is these relatively self-contained and autonomous units that teams can work on, data comes in and data comes out, uh, and they're well-documented to be able to afford the sort of, that kind of autonomous collaboration while still being part of a system. Have you read um, Designing Delivery by Jeff Susna? I have not. No, it's an O'Reilly book. And um, I got wind of it as, as I was working on, on the book. And it's really interesting. It's this guy, he's a IT consultant in Minneapolis, but he's he's been working in DevOps and microservices and this type of stuff. That, that's his career and, and 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 agile development. But he caught wind of design thinking, and he realized that what DevOps was doing and what design thinking was doing was basically the same thing in these two very different contexts. And he's he's crafted a kind of grand unified theory that pulls all this stuff together, and and he sprinkles in liberally cybernetics, <laughs> um, and and the feedback loops and all that kind of stuff. It's 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 really interesting it's a it's it's a bit mind bendy um but uh it was the first time i saw someone make an argument that that successfully uh coordinated what everyone sees as two different streams designers working over here engineers kind of working over there yes they designers pass wireframes over to the engineers or something for have them build and instead made an argument that no this is this is a an needs to be an integrated coordinated organization all working toward the same goal uh and that the the values that each of these teams are are upholding are actually the same. It's just kind of expressed differently, and that's why they didn't know that they that they were that they were trying to solve the same problem. 
That sounds fascinating. I'll definitely check it out. And you have been writing stuff down as well. You have this new book, Org Design for Design Orgs. And I think a lot of what we were talking about today really kind of sets it up because I can imagine many people listening to our conversation are thinking, well, that's all great and theoretically awesome, but that would never work in my company. And what you've done along with Kristen Skinner, who co-wrote the book with you, is, is you sort of spent a couple hundred pages laying down a blueprint for how best to uh, be effective as a design team in an organization. And it, and it seemed like really practical uh, and, and a sort of a systematic way of doing that. Yeah, yeah, thank you. And it was clear that there has been a gap in the dialogue around design, the conversation around design when it comes to these operational matters. And I think it's just because it's so... It's so behind the scenes. You know, I, I, I realized this when I was running design at Groupon. Much of my work, none of my team had any idea what I was doing. And it was involved, you know, with talking to HR and talking to facilities and talking to finance and all that kind of stuff. Trying to create, trying to make sure that, that we were getting what we needed from those, um, from that part of the business to, so that I could do what's best by my team. I can make my team happy. I can keep them engaged. I can make sure they're being paid appropriately, whatever it is. And I, and, and I realized like over and over again, both internally, but then in talking to folks externally, that there was just this, this, this lack of understanding between kind of the impact that operating an org has and the output of, of the design team. But, um, starting with adaptive path, I realized like there's, there's things you can do uh, in in shaping teams and shaping orgs that will set you up for more likely to succeed uh, when it comes to the design output. Um, uh, there's a, a quote from Bill Walsh. He actually wrote a book called The Score Takes Care of Itself. I was introduced to the idea after I'd been thinking about some of this stuff. But, you know, he was the uh, coach of the San Francisco 49ers when they were the dynasty in the 80s and won a bunch of Super Bowls. And his his coaching philosophy is um, was focused on, on, on all the little details of just doing things right and, and setting up his team and setting up his org and making sure that they were functioning as they should be. He was less focused on the score and outcome because he, you know, with the idea of I just get the team working the way I think it should, that will, that, that outcome is, 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 uh, presupposed and, you know, it seems to have worked for him. Yeah. And so there's that's a, uh, there's a similar line of thinking in the entrepreneurial world where, you know, the more you sort of strive for an exit, the least likely that outcome is to happen or the, the more you're focused on the wealth, the, the least likely you are to actually achieve that. And, and that's all opposed to, uh, focusing on the quality of a product and the quality of the people on your team and the people who are your customers and the, all the other stuff sorts itself out. Right. Yeah, totally, totally. And so that's, that's kind of the, 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 the theme of the book and, and the, the motivation behind the book was to give people, I think, for the first time, there's, there's, I only know of one other book called User Experience Management that, that addressed some of the same stuff um, when we were writing it. But, but really, for the first time, give people a framework for thinking about how design teams evolve over time within organizations and what are the what are the qualities characteristics principles that you can embrace to help guide that evolution in a in a productive fashion um you know it's 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 by no means a uh, does it solve <laughs> this problem one of the things that's it's one of the things i've i've also learned in doing this is that um 
Uh, it's a little bit like Chekhov's unhappy families in that every every unhappy design team is unhappy in a different way. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, and so you can't write one book that kind of answers everybody's questions because they, they're all starting from a different point. Um, but but we we are trying to create a again this this framework to this this foundation for conversation that we can all like uh we can all join in on and hopefully um uh instead of having every conversation have to start from from uh square one we can we we can elevate the discourse um and and then move from there move you know uh, hopefully advance things uh, from that point well that's uh, certainly an admirable goal it's something that i think we've been working on for 20 years now something like that something like that yeah yeah well uh hey look i you know i really enjoyed the book um it's out by o'reilly you have some nice fish on the cover did you pick those up <laughs> um i did not get to pick those but uh o'reilly chooses your animal for you you can veto it if you have a uh uh if you if you don't agree with it but the moment i saw it i got it i was like yes that's perfect do it uh and so uh very happy we're one of the few uh, animal books that has more than one animal on the cover right because we have the three fish and i kind of like that as well so do i yeah and uh let's see on the twitter people can follow you at peter me uh peter me on twitter uh peterme.com uh, and uh, org design for design orgs.com. I'm starting to do some more writing there in support of the book and, and kind of like following on from, you know, some reactions that we're getting and seeing if it's possible to build a community of, of other design uh, org nerds <laughs> who are, who are geeking out about that stuff. Awesome. Yeah. I'll put um, links to all of that in the show notes. Good talking to you, old timer. Uh, you too, sir. Uh, thanks for for the opportunity, and and uh, uh, I'm uh, eager to hear kind of how your audience uh, embraces uh, the ideas that we've been discussing. Yeah, totally agree. Would love to hear comments, questions from anybody. Send them in. Peter Merholz, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Good show. Excellent. Thank you. This has been presentable, and I'm Jeff Fein. Hey, thanks so much for listening. If you have feedback or comments or questions or anything, really, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on the web at relay.fm slash presentable or on Twitter at presentablefm. Thanks so much.